particularly helpful in this passage. It's not a difficult passage, but if you read, if you read as well as listen, you might be able to grasp more of what he's saying than, than you would normally do. Um, can I j just say before we read, thanks, folks, for the number of people that have shown an interest in the work in, in Malawi. <coughs> um, we're planning to do something if we can, but just to bring you up to date, <coughs> Uh, the area that we're, what we work in, Zomba and Blantyre, was one of the worst hit areas in, in the country. Um, outside Blantyre, there's hills with kind of shanty towns on them, and they've been completely washed away. Completely washed away. A lot of people left homeless are still digging bodies out, and it's um, a dreadful situation, really. So thank you. We're hoping to try and have a little exercise to help a little. So thank you for your interest in that. But Stephen will fly out tomorrow morning to see, to put some boots on the ground that I wanted to go, but that was, I'd be more used than ornament, more ornament than I used to be quite honest with you. So um, Stephen's going alone. So let's read the scriptures in, in 2 Corinthians chapter number uh, 11. I've been reading my Bible for a long time, folks. Now that's not a boast. That's a confession, because you would think after such a long period of reading my Bible, I would know more about it than, than I actually do. And at 2 Corinthians, it's one of the books I find probably most difficult of all. It's quite different from the way Paul normally writes. I mean, Paul is a clever fella, really, and some of the books that he writes, Galatians and, and Romans and Colossians and things like that, you, you can't just read it easy. You have to stop and you have, have to think carefully and follow follow what he's saying. But 2 Corinthians is, is quite a different book, really, to all his other writings. He, he, he writes about some unusual subjects, for example, that he doesn't talk about in other places. And we talked about giving over 8, eight 9 and 10, and that's something that he, doesn't, he refers to, but doesn't really explain in other places. And he uses language here that you, you don't really get to um, see in other places. And in 2 Corinthians, you discover that Paul's not just a clever man. You discover that he's a compassionate man. He's not just a man with a head. He's a man with a real heart. And, and as you read through 2 Corinthians, you find some things that are very warm and he doesn't speak in a cold and unfeeling way when he speaks to these Christians. He's actually very compassionate. He's clever and he's compassionate. And I think we, there's a lesson in that before we go even any further. That, you know, we need to learn not just to be Christians that are informed, but we need to be Christians that are kind and warm-hearted and, 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 and compassionate to each other. But he actually speaks about himself in a way that he never speaks about himself in other places. Matter of fact, in other bits of the Bible, he goes to the opposite extreme, and he'd rather not speak about himself. As a matter of fact, I think it was, I think if you look at the last verse of 1 Corinthians 10, where John finished, let him that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but he whom the Lord commendeth. And he's saying, listen, it's not about me, it's about what the Lord thinks of us that, that really, really matters. And in other places, even in 1 Corinthians, he, he goes over the top to emphasise that he doesn't want to talk about himself, doesn't he? He talks about himself as 
We have this treasure in earthen vessels. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants for Jesus Christ, your slaves. And he says in First Corinthians 4, you know, it's not, it's not important that I'm judged by you. Matter of fact, I don't even make a judgment about myself. The only person that really matters when it comes to assessing things is the Lord. And so he's usually at this extreme when he's, he doesn't want anybody to think about him. He only wants everybody to think about Christ. He's not a boaster. Paul is never a boaster. He never starts, I am. He usually starts, Christ is. That's what he usually is. And I think, folks, we need to be careful of people who are quick to speak about themselves, really, don't we? You know, boasters are really something that the Lord and his word really finds very, very difficult, doesn't he, really? For example, in Romans 1, God gave them over. You know that judgment that God gives them over to? And we, we often think about the morality of the things that God gives them over to in judgment. But one of the things that God gives them over to is they become boasters. Boasters. And boasters is a, an evidence not of spirituality, but of wickedness, really. And, and Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, when it says, in the last days, perilous times will come. There's a whole list of things that will characterise the last days. And one of those characteristics is boasters, isn't it? Now, you don't need to listen to many politicians for very long to know what their character is, isn't it? We are, they're boasters. But it can percolate down even into the the companies of the Lord's people, can it? And somebody who's a boaster is somebody who could be guaranteed that they're not in the mind of the Lord at all. I say that because this passage that we're going to read about, Paul seems to be not boasting, but he seems to be talking about himself in a way that he wouldn't normally do that. And you, you know that I favour um, favor the, the King James Version when it comes to reading my Bible. But I'm actually going to read it in the ESV because it helps us in a modern way understand more of what Paul was getting at. The ESV's language is easier to understand than the older 1611 King James. And so I'm going to read it in the ESV. So one, verse 1 to verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel divine jealousy for you. And so he says in verse 1, what I'm going to tell you, I'm actually quite reluctant to tell you. You know, bear with me a bit because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm being foolish by doing what I'm doing, but I'm kind of forced into doing it. C can you see what I'm saying? He's a man that's reluctant to talk about himself. A man that's not pushing himself forward or, or, or listing his achievements. He's a man of great humility and we're going to see that as we go on and that's a really important characteristic of a Christian isn't it somebody who doesn't push themselves forward someone who takes a lower place and humble he says for I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a, a, a pure virgin to Christ and he talks about being jealous now <laughs> is jealousy a good thing is jealousy a good thing? Well, I was always taught that jealousy was a bad thing. When I was a, a, a kid at Sunday school, we were taught a little chorus about, it's about rabbits and fields spoiling the corn, and it says, root them out, get them gone, all the little rabbits in the fields of corn, envy, jealousy, malice and pride, they must never in my heart abide. 
And so jealousy is that avarice, envious, covetousness. That's, that's, what we talk, that's what we think about when we say somebody's jealous. We always think of jealous as a negative thing, don't we? But this word jealous is used in the Bible in a very positive way. It means to be enthusiastic and interested and zealous is really a good word rather than jealous. And he says, I feel a design, earnestness, jealousy, protectiveness, eagerness for you. He's saying, I really, really value you. That's what he's saying. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these (coughs) super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you all in all things. Paul's worried about Christians, that people are going to come in and corrupt their Christian life and what they believe. And these people had done this in Corinth. Paul had seen the Christians saved. He'd seen them established. And while he was absent, other people came in, other preachers. The Lord's people gave preachers the pulpit who were teaching other things. And they were saying, look, forget about what Paul says. Listen to what we say. Paul's kind of old, old hat. Paul's kind of old-fashioned. We've moved on a bit since Paul. So, so, so let's put him in the back burner and don't, and I'm going to bring you another Jesus. We're going to talk about another spirit and we've got a gospel that's been adapted. It's moved on, you know. And he said, listen, Paul says, listen, I'm terrified that that's going to spoil you. That's really going to spoil you. And then he says in verse 7, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained And I will refrain from burdening you in any way, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. God knows I do. And what I am doing I will continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. He said, I'm talking to you like this, not because I want to, but because it's the only way I can puncture these false teachers that are coming amongst you. Unless you understand the difference between the true and the false, you'll never understand the false. You need to know the true as well as the false. I'm telling you what's true. Isn't that, you know the story in the bank when they used to have uh, teach the bankers to recognise counterfeit notes? They never gave them counterfeit notes to handle. They only give them genuine notes to handle because once you come to know the genuineness of the notes, when a fake one comes along your path, you notice it right away. 
You don't have to learn about fakes. You just recognise fakes when they come your way. The more truth you know, the more easy it is to recognise falsehood when it comes along. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm telling you things that are true. So that when these fellas come along with error, immediately the alarm bells will ring in your mind and you'll say, this is not right. This is not right. Have you ever... Have you ever heard that? Have you ever listened to somebody and or, or read something or put a podcast on and, and you've listened to it and you thought, I, I can't just quit, put my finger on it, but I know that's not right. There's just something that doesn't ring true about that. And the more we understand and take in truth, the more easy it will be to recognise error. And look why this is true. For such men are false apostles deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ false teachers never come along with a badge that says I'm a false teacher they never do that they always come along disguising themselves as apostles of Christ they always come along telling you that they've got the truth you know, you know, no, we, we're, we're the real deal. We're the real thing. You know, you know, we are the anointed ones. You touch not the Lord's anointed. We're the ones that really know the stuff. So, but they never come along and say, actually, what I'm doing is trying to deceive you and, um, and draw you away. They never do that. They disguise themselves. And look what it says. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Isn't that interesting, folks? So it is no surprise that if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. What's Paul saying? You need to learn to be recognised people who are teaching you error. It's not judgmental to say to somebody that's teaching you something, please will you show me it in the Bible please? It's not judgmental when somebody says, oh, don't, don't worry about that, just, we just love everybody. Those things don't matter. It's not judgmental to say, I'm actually sorry, but I think the Bible says something different to that. Matter of fact, Paul's encouraging us to do exactly that. And Paul and John will do exactly the same. He'll say, when somebody comes along, he says, test the spirits. Why? To see that they're of God. And Paul's going to talk to these people about recognising falsehood. And, and that's what he's doing. He's trying to just use his own testimony to teach them about how to recognise it and how to be protected. So let's, let's look at this because as I read this passage, I confess to you, I found it really difficult to follow the, just the reading and really difficult to get a grasp of what the big lessons were. So, so here's how I've kind of thought about this passage. In this passage, you see the heart of a man that really cares for the spiritual welfare of Christians. That's what he's doing. He's looking at Christians that he's seen saved. He's looking at Christians that he's seen established in the truth. And he's looking at Christians that he hasn't seen for a while. And he says, well, you know, my heart is I'm really concerned about you. Because I'm not there doesn't mean I don't care. A matter of fact, you know, when you, when you, if you're reading with us along through the Acts of the Apostles, you know, you're probably doing that at the minute if you're in the New Testament. You're reading about Paul and Silas and Paul and Barnabas going around the place and they saw lots of people saved and they lots, lots of churches established. And so there was lots of places like Corinth where Paul had spiritual children, right? 
And he's concerned about them. And when you read in this passage, you see the heart of a man that's really cares about Christians. In fact, if you go to the, the book of Galatians, no, no, forgive me, Colossians, he actually doesn't just care about Christians that he knows personally. He actually cares about Christians that he doesn't know personally. Isn't that right? He writes to the Colossians and he says, I've never seen your face and I've never seen the people in Laodicea, but I want to look after you as well. So what we're going to see in this passage is the heart of a man that really loves Christians. And it doesn't matter whether there are people in his own fellowship, it's every Christian he's got a big heart for. But isn't that a good lesson for us? Isn't that a good lesson for us? Because we often get a weak in a narrow-minded parochial view, don't we? That we are the people, we are the folks that know everything, and we forget that there's other Christians, other Christians that equally need caring for. So, so here's how I'm just going to take a few minutes, and I'm going to talk to you about four things. I want to talk to you about Paul's loyalty. Paul was a very, very loyal man. Loyalty, folks, is a really, really important Christian characteristic. God desires his people to be loyal, doesn't he? And when we read this, we'll discover this. He's loyal for God. He's loyal for God because he wants these people, when they get to the end of their journey, to bring glory for God. He wants them to be for God's glory. And he's loyal to the commitment of God's glory. But he's loyal to folks, to the Christians. He wants the Christians to be looked after. And he's going to be, to use another expression, he's going to spend and be spent to make sure the Christians are in good health, spiritual health, isn't he? So he's, he's loyal not just to God, he's loyal to, he's loyal to the Christians He's loyal to Christ because he's, he doesn't want anybody to come and tarnish the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want somebody to bring another Jesus in. He's loyal to the Spirit's work, isn't he? If any man bring another Spirit. And he's loyal to the Gospel. He's a man that's totally committed. Folks, Christianity is not about Christ being part of our life. He is our life, isn't he? And he demands loyalty. He deserves loyalty. We must learn to be loyal. Loyal to God, loyal to the Christians, loyal to the word, loyal to the gospel, loyal to Christ. Loyal. We need to learn to be people who are loyal. What does loyal mean? Totally committed. Totally committed. So we'll see a wee little bit about his loyalty at the beginning. And then we'll see a wee bit about Paul's anxiety. It wasn't so clear in, in the ESV after me saying that it was clearer in the ESV. But in verse number three, in the, um, the authorised version, it says, But I fear. Right? Paul's anxious. There's something that's really, really worrying him. We won't get time to talk about it, folks, but, you know, anxiety is a very real and distressing and at times debilitating force in a Christian's life. It really is. And the Bible recognises anxiety. There's no question about that. And actually gives us a resolution 
for anxiety. And you know what I'm talking about now, those anxious things that come into our life. But when Paul says he's anxious, it doesn't mean he's, he's anxious about what clothes he's going to wear or what's going to happen tomorrow. He's worried about the Christians. His anxiety, matter of fact, you go down to the, the end of this chapter, we won't, ha- I won't touch that verse today. It says, I've gone through all these things. And you know the worst thing of all? Not the worst thing of all. You know the biggest thing that's in my mind? I don't care about shipwrecks and, and being beaten. Every day, I've got the care of the churches. And that word care is anxiety. It's take no, the Lord says in, in, in the sermon, take no anxious thought. And Paul and, and Paul will say, you know, be anxious for nothing. It's the same word. He says, listen, every day I've got the anxious care of all the churches. But this fear is, he's terrified. He's terrified. There actually are some good things to be worried about, folks. There are some, there are some times when it's good to be concerned and anxious and almost terrified. Terrified that... God's glory is going to be compromised. Terrified that God's people are going to be damaged. Terrified that the gospel is going to be compromised. They're good things to be worried about. And we'll see that there's a time when it's right to be anxious. So we've got Paul's humility, loyalty in this passage. We've got Paul's anxiety in this passage. And we've got Paul's humility in this passage. Do you know he says, when I came to you, it would have been perfectly acceptable for me to say, okay, look after me while I'm with you. Pay the preacher. That's what he could have said. Because he's talked about that as an important principle, that those that preach the gospel should live the gospel. Isn't that right? So, so he's, not, he's not doing anything wrong by saying that, you know, if a Lord's servant comes amongst you, you've got a responsibility for him. He said, no, 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 no. But what I did was... I considered your welfare so important and your situation more important that I didn't put a legitimate demand on you. Matter of fact, I was glad that there was other churches and other places that supported me while I was amongst you. And I didn't pull my rank. And I didn't get my rights. I just took the humble place and said, I'll serve you just for serving you's sake. He's a really humble servant of the Lord. He's a really humble servant of the Lord. We get this kind of idea that Paul was an arrogant, brash uh, you, you know, overconfident guy. Nothing could be further from the truth. He was a very humble, self-effacing. You know, you know. He never came along and said, "Right, boys, let's have a week of meetings." I'm the Bible teacher. Let's get on with it. I'm the teacher here. No, he was never like that. He was never like that. He was exactly the opposite to that. He was. He would be. He would be quick to serve the Lord in whatever way the Lord wanted him to, but he would be very slow to push himself forward in front of the Lord's people. Very slow to do that. Very slow to wear his badge. I am a Bible teacher. I see that constantly now. Bible teacher and evangelist. Well, I mean, if God wants to do that for you, praise the Lord for that, but don't push yourself up forward with all that sort of stuff. Anyway, you'll see his loyalty. You'll see his anxiety. You'll see his humility, but right at the end you'll see his clarity, right? He's spelling it out in words of one syllable and in the clearest possible terms. When somebody comes along and tries to undermine the truth, do you know what it is? It's an attack of the enemy. It's an evidence that the devil is working against you. And let me tell you, false teachers are what? Servants of the devil. Can you see that? Let's make no, 
Let's be not unambiguous. Let's not be ambiguous about it. Let's be clear about it. These false teachers that are so prevalent at the moment, and you'll see them everywhere. You'll see them on the internet. You'll listen to them in podcasts. You'll find them in books and the Christian thing. Some of these people, you know, I'm not talking about nuances now. I'm not talking about nuances now. I'm talking about people that overtly preach against what the Bible teaches to be true. Right? These people are not just people that are misled. They're actually agents of the devil. And it doesn't matter what kind of suit they wear or what kind of church they've got or what kind of way they profess. They're angels of light specifically designed to do what? To be disguised to deceive. And Paul will be very, very clear about that. So let's just, let's just jog down through this very, very quickly in six minutes and see. Let's think about, first of all, Paul's loyalty. Paul's loyalty to God. He wants at the end of the journey for these Corinthians to get to the end as those that have pleased the Lord. Right? So what he's anxious about is, so, so, what, he's, so what he's concerned about, what his loyalty is, is to see Christians. I'm committed to seeing Christians not just justified by faith. Right? Because Paul brought the truth of justification by faith to them in the gospel. But Paul's loyal to them because he doesn't just want to see them justified by faith. He wants to see them sanctified as well. He wants to see them living a sanctified and holy life. And he says, I'm going to commit myself so that you'll be to the glory of God and living a sanctified life. You see, folks, some people think it's enough to be saved. You know what I mean by that? They think it's enough just to understand that God sent his son to die on the cross to save them and they're justified by faith. I'll trust in the Lord and in the end my sins will be forgiven and I'll be in heaven and case of Asherah, that's all that matters. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible doesn't teach it's enough to be saved. The Bible teaches it's the start to be saved but God has a big, big thing for you to open up. It's not enough to be saved and settled. It's in, you have to be saved and go on. And Paul says, listen, I don't want you just to be saved and settled. I want you to go on, and I'm going to commit my life to making sure you do go on. That, that he's, he's loyal to them. Why? Because he wants them to be for the glory of God at the end of their life. Now, folks, we place a really heavy emphasis on the preaching of the gospel here. We don't do it because we've always done it. We've done it because we very deliberately think it's so important, Right? To see people saved is fundamentally important. And you can see people saved. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's, we can't stop preaching the gospel. We mustn't. But you know, we've got something bigger in our heart than that, haven't we? We don't just want to see people saved and then walk away and, and live the life that they've always lived. We want to see folks living for the glory of God. Zealous for his glory and living for his glory and getting together to live for his glory. And that's what Paul's got here. He's loyal to the he's loyal to the, the Corinthians. And he says this, I'm so loyal that I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Jealousy. How can jealous jealous be godly? Well, folks, we don't we don't have time to go through it, but go through your old testament. Do you know it's one of the primary characteristics of God? God is a jealous God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean avarice and covetous. And uh, uh, what it means that God's committed and protective to His own glory, His character. 
And he's committed and protective to his own people. And when somebody touches his name and his character, or when somebody touches his people, God is deeply offended. He's deeply offended when his name is dishonoured and when his people are touched. When God's people are touched, when God's people are persecuted, God takes that very personally. Very, very personally. And Paul says, listen, I'm just the same. See when you Christians that I've seen saved and, and baptised and going, see when I see things going wrong about you, I, I take that personally. I, I, I really do take it personally because I have espoused you to one husband that I present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now this is a this is a, 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 a an Eastern old, well not even old fashioned, but this is a kind of Eastern different culture view of marriage, right? Because Western Western views of marriage are not Bible views of marriage, folks. They're not the way the Bible portrays marriage. And some countries in Africa and in Asia, the Bible and the Middle East, they still have that concept of, of biblical marriage. Because, for example, when in a marriage in the UK, who's, the, who's, who's front and centre? The bride. Isn't that right? Nobody thinks about the groom. The groom just turns up, dresses nice, smiles, and is forgotten about for most of the day. Everybody's thinking about the bride, right? But see, in the Bible, do you know who's the main character in a, in a marriage in the Bible? Or in a wedding in the Bible? It's the groom. And that's much more important, folks, because when we get to the New Testament and the picture comes between the bride of Christ, right? Who's the main character? On that marriage supper of the Lamb, who's the main character? Nobody wants to look at the bride. We all want to look at the. We all want to look at Christ, don't we? So here's the picture: a father has a daughter, and the daughter finds a good husband for his daughter, right? Because this father really wants the best for his daughter, right? And so he finds a good man for his daughter. And when he finds the good man for his daughter, there's two parts to this marriage. There's first of all the betrothal and then there's what they call the nuptial part of the thing, right? Okay. So there's this agreement made that this girl is going to marry this man and she's betrothed to this man, right? Now, the betrothal is like modern day engagement, really. It's a committal. But modern Western engagement committal can be transient and, and easily broken. In the Bible in those days, it wasn't. Once you were committed, you were committed, right? And so an espousal, an engagement was a big, 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 big thing. And it usually meant that there was a year after that of two things. Number one, preparation by the man that was going to marry. Do you know what he would do? He would build a house and he would, he, would, he would make preparation for this day coming. And he would live his life preparing for the day of the nuptials, right? They were espoused. But the day of the nuptials were going to be, and he would prepare for that. That's the kind of picture, folks, in John 14, right? I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go... So, so the Lord's preparing, right? Preparing. So the, the husband would prepare and get ready for the day of marriage. Now the father, he would be doing something else. He would be preparing the woman, his daughter, for the day of nuptial. And what would happen was, on the day of marriage, the, 
the father would prove to the husband, uh, the prospective husband, that his wife or his bride was pure, right? Because it was so important that the bride came into the marriage pure, right? That's so, so important. Because if the prospective husband discovered that the woman that had been promised him wasn't pure, he could say, I'm sorry, I'm not interested. That's what he could say, right? So, so the father is making sure that his daughter is pure and ready and, and perfect for when the day of his espousals, you know, when the day of, of marriage comes. So the father is jealous for his daughter to protect her and prepare her and make her perfect, right? And Paul says, listen, I'm like the father. That's, that's, you, you, you're, my, you're my daughter as Christians and, and the day's coming when the Lord's going to receive you into himself. And I want you on that day to be perfect and pure when, the, when, you're, when you're received by the Lord. Can, can you see that picture? Because I want to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So I don't just want you saying in your head that you believe in Jesus. I want your lives to be consistently pure and holy so that when you're received into the holiness of glory, it's not a big transition. I want to present you as a chief. And Paul says, listen, I'm so jealous. And if anybody comes in and tries to spoil you, you know, they touch you, they touch me. I'm really, really so committed to you that I want you to be chaste and holy and pure. I guess, folks, I'm talking to myself here, really. I think that's really what elders, pastors should do with the congregation that they're over. Isn't that right? We should be looking at every Christian with this great desire to see them progress and be holy and pure. Not so that they can fit them old or tick the boxes, but so that we're, we're for the glory of Christ. And when the day comes, we'll be a little, wouldn't it be wonderful? If when the Lord comes, he would find a wee company of Christians and, and Benjamin here just living for his glory, pure and holy, with, his, with a single mind for him. Wouldn't that be a lovely thing? And Paul says, listen, I'm loyal to you folks. If that's what I, it takes, that's what it takes. And if I have to tell you about me, to, t- to get you there, I'm going to tell you about me. We're over the time. Listen, but listen, just see one more thing. His anxiety. I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity is in Christ. And you have to, we don't have time, but you, you need to go way, way back to Genesis 3 to see how Eve was deceived, right? Now, listen, Eve's not dumb. Eve's not dumb, right? She's not a dumb blonde that's easily fooled. She's not. She's a perfect human created by God, from his hands, right? And when the enemy comes along, he takes, he's very subtle in his tactics. He doesn't just throw it up in her face and, and she says, you know, did, did, what did God say really? What did God say re- really, right? Well, God said there's a tree in the middle of the garden and, you know, we've not to eat it. And then she added not to touch it, didn't she? I, th- I wonder maybe, if Adam had added that wee bit to Eve to try and protect her. You know? You know, you've not to eat it, but, but, but we better not to touch it, Eve. Better not to touch it. And then the devil says, listen, just think about that, Eve. Think about that, Eve. Think about that, Eve. 
You see what he's going to do? Corrupting our simplicity of our mind. Rather than just accepting the word of God and trusting the word of God, um, the devil's saying, think about it. You know, use your brain here. Did, did God really say that the day you eat of it, you'll die? What is death, Eve? Eve, what is death? Eve had no idea what death was. She had no idea what it was. So there's a wee doubt so in her mind. <laughs> you shall not die. You shall not die. You see, think about it, Eve. God's not telling you the whole truth here. As a matter of fact, the day you eat it, you'll become like God. Knowing the difference between good and evil. And, and you see what's happening. He's getting in. And he's corrupting our mind. Folks, there's whole movements designed to corrupt your mind as a Christian. Isn't that right? To make you doubt the word of God. And Paul's really concerned about it. And look what he's concerned about. For if somebody comes and preaches another Jesus, or another gospel, or another spirit, you know, you might put up with him. You might have somebody come along and say, Paul's old hat, we've moved on, here's another Jesus it's not like the Jesus that Paul spoke about. If I said to you, John Newton, and a hymn, what would you think about? What would you think about? John Newton's hymn. Surely. Amazing Grace. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. But he wrote a lot more hymns. There's actually a book called Only Hymns. Him and William Cowper wrote 384 hymns in three volumes of Only Hymns. So John Newton's got more hymns than Amazing Grace, and some of them are really fantastic, folks. Cowper's hymns are amazing. This is one that he wrote. What think ye of Christ? Is the, uh, what think ye of Christ is the state to try both your state and your scheme? You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. Right? So what he's saying is, what think ye of Christ is a test? To try both your state and your scheme of God at last. You cannot be right in the rest if you do not think rightly of him. In other words, what a person thinks of Christ is absolutely vital. When they start putting question marks or, 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 or disparaging the person of Christ, you know they're on, on background. And when they bring another gospel to you. Paul's humility, Paul's transparency, Paul's clarity. What he says is, don't make any mistake. The angel is not always a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He disguises himself as an angel of light. If you have somebody come to your door and say they're coming to read your gas meter they need to get into your house, you're going to be awful careful, aren't you? Right? You're going to ask to see their ID. You're not letting anybody into your house unless they see your ID. Or at least I hope you're not. But I'll tell you what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't just take their ID as being... You know, genuine. It could be false, couldn't it? And it wouldn't be the first time in times I had somebody's faked ID to get into somebody's house to steal their steal their goods. Why? Because they've disguised themselves as gas meters or, or electricity readers or, or plumbers or something like that. And what's the intention? The intention is to steal and damage and they're not disguised. They don't come with a mask and a gun. They come with a they come with some credentials that have been faked. Paul says, Listen, you be careful. There's lots of folks with fake credentials, isn't there? You can find 
If you go this afternoon and YouTube preachers, you'll find thousands of preachers on YouTube. How do you know who's telling you the truth? Eh? How do you know who's fake and who's not fake? Well, they all love Jesus. Well, do they love the right Jesus? That's the first thing you need to ask, isn't it? And how do you know? All comes back to this, folks, doesn't it? All comes back to this. You need to know your Bible. And Paul says, listen, I'm really concerned about you. I love you and I'm committed to your spiritual welfare. But I worry about you. Nothing wrong with worrying about Christians, folks. That's what makes us pray most of the time, isn't it? Because we worry about our, our Christian friends and brothers. And there's nothing wrong about transparency. We haven't any time to talk about that. But let's be clear. We need to be very careful who we listen to. And we need to be very careful who we swallow truth from. It's all got to be for the glory of God and according to the word of God. If it's not, they're angels of light, disguised servants of a devil. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for help that just opens our eyes sometimes to see things that we don't really see without your help. And so, Lord, we just pray that we might become like that chaste virgin ready to be a spouse to Christ and that when the angels of light come and the devil sends false teachers you'll help us to discern that you'll help us to set our minds for the glory of God and to live in a way that will please thee so we're thankful for our time together thankful for refreshment and we give thanks in the Lord's name Amen